Hello and welcome to Living the Questions, a podcast where we talk about life, the universe, and everything. I'm your host, Oliver Mesmer. Today's guest is Michael Boover. Michael is a Catholic worker who has worked as a teacher and chaplain and lives in Worcester, Massachusetts. In the early 1970s, he co-founded the Mustard Seed Catholic Worker House in Worcester. Michael did his graduate studies at Assumption College and Andover Newton Seminary and taught at Worcester State and Anna Maria College. After working as a chaplain at Worcester Recovery Center and Hospital for a number of years, he has recently retired and is working on organizing a celebration to mark the 50-year anniversary of the Mustard Seed Catholic Worker. Michael describes himself as a peasant scholar and a fool for Christ. Thanks for tuning in, and I hope you enjoy the episode. Hi, Michael, and welcome. Good morning, Oliver. Thank you. How are you doing this morning? Oh, we're uh, carrying on. The sun is breaking through at the moment. It just broke through, so... Uh, I think that, metaphorically speaking, is uh, a good omen, good sign. Yeah, that's good to you know, hear. I'm overlooking the gardens, and uh, I'm thrilled about that. <laughs> There's more green to be seen as well. So. Oh, wonderful. Have you begun to uh, plant for this season? or? You know, we've been uh, doing some work um we have what we call the Blueberry Protection Society. We got some nets of, over the blueberries, and we have some peas planted, and some rhubarb sprouts are coming up. We planted some mm. fruit trees too, uh, and so uh, we're looking forward to, you know, uh, the green revolution, as Peter Warren uh, spoke of it. A little little patch of it, at least here in uh, Worcester. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's beautiful. We at the Divinity School at Yale are just gearing up for garden season. We have a little patch of land that is called the Divinity Garden. And so uh, there's many plots that, like, that are rented out. Well, not necessarily. We don't pay for them, but they're uh, allocated to students for the season. And then there's some more communal plots and it's a it's a a place of, of gathering for mm. a lot of the students. That's wonderful. It's been very, yeah, I've met a lot of great people through it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Nice. Have you have you always been interested in gardening um, and, and growing food? And Well, um, you know, I come out of the Catholic Worker Movement, so one of the, one of the three C's of Peter Morin there are three, cult, culture, and cultivation. Uh, the cultivation uh, piece has always intrigued me. And I got to visit a number of Catholic worker farms here and there uh, mm-hmm. and uh, was part of a Catholic worker farm in Northern California for a while, lived on a, on a Catholic worker farm. It was kind of a homestead up in the Sierra Nevada foothills for a year and a half. Mm-hmm. And I also ended up you know, with the mustard seed in the Urban House of Hospitality, uh, being connected to St. Joseph's Abbey in Spencer, Massachusetts, where we had a 
hermit befriend us in the early 70s and uh, a Trappist monk hermit. And together with him in time, we grew an acre of corn and an acre of mixed vegetables that we would bring into the city to feed the poor. So it was sort of this agricultural edge to what we were doing in the city. We also had a farm commune connected to the Worcester House uh, called the House of Ammon, named after Ammon Hennessy, out in Hubbardston. And I would go to the farm periodically. I always was taken with the vision of uh, Peter Moran's agronomic university. So I think it's wonderful you have a garden there at Yale. Mm-hmm. And uh, I know there was the beginning of a garden at Andover Newton about the time when I was, you know, uh, I had graduated, I think, but I'd heard about some initiatives to get some some tomatoes grown and other other wonderful things. And it was, a, like you say, it brings people together, you know, yeah, in a way that's very important. And I think for us, too, there's a question of it being kind of symbolic. I mean, it's a modest venture. But to add a little substance, too, to, you know, uh, a sense that we are indeed connected to the earth and... Uh, uh, sharing some concerns, I think, that Pope Francis had in Audato Si about the care of creation and how we uh, need to be uh, good stewards of the land and uh, partners with the earth, with creation. So it's, you know, part of us, uh, uh, of our witness here is to be uh, attentive to that third C cultivation uh, of it. So yes, there has been a, an interest. I also uh, spent four years in a high school seminary in New Hampshire. It was in an old Shaker village and the Shakers were such good farmers, but there was a brother there, brother Emil Morin, who was a farmer. And after I graduated from the high school seminary, I go up there and it was the day of the, kind of the hippie communes had begun all over the place. And uh, I was taken with the agricultural vision that the hippies had to, I go up there occasionally and visit him and try to be supportive of all the work he was doing. He was such a great farmer and would, you know, help with something here or there, some hoeing or something uh, up in the foothills. Was, was he a shaker? Uh, it, the Lasselet fathers and brothers uh, oh, okay. bought the old shaker village in 1927. But the shaker influence is still felt, you know, and but they did some good farming, the brothers who were there. Um, lots of brothers who were workers and often did manual work. They kept a herd mm-hmm. of cattle as well uh, and chickens. And so there was, you know, I think even in, in, uh, in that experience, uh, an invitation to kind of think about being connected to the land. Yeah. It sounds like it's been a, a theme in your life since you were in the high school seminary when yeah. you were a young man. Yeah, yeah, and even before that, my father worked uh, as a machinist in a in a, uh, a factory in Whitensville. Uh, I grew up in a little mill town, mm-hmm. uh, but that white machine works used to give a little plot of uh, of land to its workers to work. Huh. Um, and uh, I remember one year we we got a little plot for our family, so that was also kind of a nice oh. thing, you know, that we we actually. Uh, uh, tried to grow a few things. 
I remember that. Did, it's kind of an interesting experiment. Yeah. Did yeah. your uh, family have experience with gardening or growing things at the time? You know, or was uh, it just uh, my ancestors came from, as you go? from uh, Ireland and, and French Canada. Mm-hmm. And I know the French Canadians definitely did. They, they mm-hmm. lived in a little village uh, above the U.S. border in, mm-hmm. in uh, Quebec. And they were definitely, you know, my grandfather was a lumberjack. They had lived on a farm. They really, yeah, and it was hard living. But wow. he came to the factories of New England after he lost a team of horses in a ravine one winter. Oh, my goodness. And it was just too much to be able to, you know, sustain himself economically but it, he opened up oh. brought us into this new world you know uh, he didn't speak English at the time but he had a brother in New Bedford who uh, could uh, hired uh, uh, sort of a, they had little groups of French Canadian men who would hmm. work together uh, who could speak the language together and eventually they would learn English you know all of them but in the meantime they could find work with each other yeah, a little co-op type thing, you know, of French speakers when they were yeah. here. And uh, his brother, Ben, I think uh, he was a Finnish carpenter in New Bedford and helped my, my grandfather, Antoine, to to settle here by getting some work you know, with these little crews that they had of French speakers originally. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. I remember my grandfather got us some chickens uh, when I was a kid. We had a few little chickens in the backyard, and that was kind of fun too. So you think about, you know, how our roots influence us. They do, you know, our mm-hmm. families of origin. Mm-hmm. By hocking back to Ireland, and what I know about Ireland probably is a, a sadder tale in terms of, I think, uh, people being uh, cast out from the land um, mm-hmm. and, and having to emigrate and facing yeah. a lot of poverty. So there's, there's all also that for me in terms of the urban hospitality work we did in Worcester and the Catholic worker mm-hmm. is trying to look at poverty and those issues you know, a little yeah. bit more for square. But they're also part of, I, I think for me, you look at increasingly my roots as having a genetic kind of marker and, and, uh, Growing potatoes, for instance, over here, I, I feel, you know, I, I should be doing that, you know, uh, mm. and, and tribute to my Irish ancestors, you know, and sure. uh, also my French. Um, and uh, and so it's been wonderful to have this sort of little urban farm we call Annunciation House on the edge of Worcester. And we're a little bit of a compliment, we're not officially a Catholic worker farm, mm-hmm. but we're very influenced by the Catholic worker movement. Maybe a Catholic worker garden. Yeah, yeah. My friend <laughs> reminds me, says, yeah, it's not a farm. A farm has horses and cows and says, it's a garden. <laughs> but if you were like a, like a real city oh. slicker and you came and saw, even though it's modest in some ways, saw that here, you might say, oh, that's a little urban farm. Depends on your, your vision. A lot depends mm. on your... your um, where you're located, so to speak. Location becomes... Sure. It may be a farm to some <laughs> and a garden yeah. to others. Right, right. That's yeah. it. It's like, oh, that, yeah, if you grow up, you know, maybe in, in, in wider spaces, like... 
where farms go for acres and acres and acres. Yeah. And you think, oh. But one day when my wife and I, Diane and I, we, we were uh, needed to provide a supper meal for the mustard seed for the Catholic okay. house for a supper, which at yeah. the time maybe we were feeding a hundred or so folks, you know, a free mm-hmm. supper. And uh, we ended up one summer uh, making a large vegetable lasagna that was filled with zucchini that we had grown ourselves in our backyard here. And I thought, oh, Peter Morin would have loved that. You know that was the fulfillment of mm-hmm. the mission was to was to have these uh, farms uh, supportive of the urban labors. But the ideal life was the life on the farm, the life on the land, mm-hmm. uh, the sanctified life. But most of our houses are urban hospitality houses. You know that feed a lot of people, and mm-hmm. clothe people, and shelter people, and yeah. all of that. And a lot of our farms have been houses of hospitality on the land. But some of them have been working farms, working homesteads, mm-hmm. uh, goat farms, and so forth. And uh, and some have been rather successful uh, farming ventures as uh, kind of CSAs. There's one in, in Iowa, I think, that's sort of a community-supported agricultural, uh, you know, self-sustaining project economically, which is quite remarkable. And other yeah. farms are, are doing doing well uh, as farms, you know. Um, mm-hmm. It's nice to see that. And a lot of young people seem to be drawn to the agricultural vision. And I know you were connected to Agape, which also continues the Agape community in Hardwick, Mass. That's right. To uh, uphold an agricultural dimension to their the life of Christian uh, witness that they, uh, particularly with regard to nonviolence and peace. Mm-hmm. And uh, having peace with the uh, creation, I think, is is uh, a great contribution. And agape, mm-hmm. I think, is teaching. You know, it's a school, like Peter Moore envisioned, an agronomic university. Mm-hmm. So I think with the seminaries, you know, I, th- I think it's it's nice to think of seminaries as uh, using some of their land for gardens and and uh, thinking about uh, about. Uh, the land and stewardship in new ways and connecting it to the faith uh, in, in new ways. Absolutely. It's, it's, it's wonderful to have it as part of the, the seminary experience and seems to uh, have parallel values with, with the Catholic worker movement in that way. Um, although it's not necessarily part of the like curriculum, it's uh, definitely a part of the experience for many and for those who choose to be a part of it. Um, I know you've, you've mentioned the importance of the Catholic worker movement to your life and to your vision and philosophy. Um, I I'd love to hear about the, uh, kind of your, your upbringing and, and how you got involved with, with the Catholic worker. What, what were some of the questions that were, that you were wrestling with that the Catholic worker seemed to answer for you? Yeah, yeah, sure. Well, um, I grew up in a small French-Canadian hamlet in central Massachusetts called Linwood. And uh, our parish church was probably outside of the, the nuclear family itself, the next, the next uh, I think, social organism that I was a part of. So much so that... Um, it left kind of an indelible mark, you know, on my spirit. 
on my soul um, of a, a sense of the holy or the sacred. Um, and I grew up taught by nuns, you know, French Canadian nuns. And uh, part of that background was a little tough. It was kind of strict in some ways, a little rigid. Some of that I reacted to later when I kind of became a Catholic hippie. You know, it was sort of a, a, a response to things being wound up a little too tight. But I, I credit my roots in this little hamlet uh, with giving me a sense of, I think, of what Peter Morin had is that sense of traditional Catholicism is having a great cultural vision. Um, the worshiping community uh, and the school that we were in, uh, really the faith was sort of communicated, uh, you know, through word and sacrament in such a way that I ended up sort of being kind of a, a religious geek as a kid. I was an altar boy, and but I found in the church something I didn't find elsewhere in my youth. It gave me a sense of security, I think, that I was longing for, but also that I received to some extent through the uh, framework, I think, of traditional Catholicism, uh, which was just ordinary parish life. But I grew up uh, at probably about sixth or seventh grade, maybe maybe a little later, maybe it's great. In the mid-60s, Vatican II happened in the Catholic Church. And I was part of all those changes. And John uh, XXIII, who was the reigning pontiff at the time, opened that council to kind of create a fresh breeze in the Catholic Church, opened the windows, aggiornamento, they called it. And I think I, I remember we started singing Protestant hymns in that Catholic church. We started, you know, I think beginning to um, change some of the, the kind of set in stone architecture, you know, the statuary. Or, you know, I think probably looking at some of the better critiques of the Reformation, uh, you know, sort of a, a chance to be part of a sea change as a youth after Vatican II, and it certainly felt good to me, you know, to, to, to welcome some of these changes, as much as I appreciate also in some ways the, I guess, young people desire to have some kind of stability, and they say discipline and order, you know, are actually young people cry out for that. I, I got plenty of that, I guess, and uh, so I was ready for something a little different. But uh, I went to this high school seminary. I, I think I, I was kind of geeky, and I think I I was trying to escape, I think, some things that I felt like I wanted to escape by going to this seminary. And I, I did sort of escape some things. And um, I think I began to receive an education that was quite helpful for what was to follow. And I think of my four years in that seminary in Enfield, New Hampshire, which is now closed, but it's a Shaker Museum now in the foothills of the White Mountains, beautiful setting. I credit those years as being very, very formative, you know? So almost like graduate school in a way, or we were like a little monastic. We were like little monks, although we didn't, I don't think we had much of a sense of an interior life too much. I think a few of the guys did who were, who were in good shape, but this was the early 60s. We were, it was pretty much, uh, we were drawn to that life for different reasons. Uh, 
But I remember, um, I remember one time we had a soccer game there, and uh, mostly we played a lot of the prep schools in New Hampshire. You know, Holderness, uh, Kimball Union Academy, Vermont, um, Proctor Academy, all of these very elite prep schools in New Hampshire. We were one of those, uh, uh, Tilton Academy, we would play soccer. But one time we there was a Catholic orphanage and they came to play us, these kids from this Catholic orphanage. And they had no equipment they had just, you know, sneakers and no shin pads. And and usually we were kind of the, on the bottom rung of this prep school network. But these kids showed up. They didn't even have enough, uh, uh, these orphans, uh, that they were from Orford, New Hampshire, I remember. They didn't have enough uh, uh, players to make a team. So the priest who ran that orphanage played as a – and I remember he uh, – he uh, he played uh, barefoot against us, and he didn't have to say a word. But that was a lesson that was just very very powerful for me. And there was a woman who came to speak to us about poverty in New Hampshire, rural poverty. And I remember being drawn to that. I also had a Quaker history professor who kind of turned me on to the Catholic worker. And then there was an alum who was doing anti-draft work in Philadelphia who wrote me a letter. I was kind of a conservative, relatively conservative editor of a high school seminary newspaper. But when I got turned on to, uh, I think, the peace thing from these folks saying, hey, there's more than, you know, just uh, living in your sylvan cloister, you know, and uh, and following all the, all the uh, kind of doctrinal uh, lines, which I was kind of attuned to. I was kind of a convert to that. He says, I suggest one of the fellows who wrote me was an alum, uh, was opposing the draft, and he was writing there, consider reading Merton and Day and the Berrigan brothers. And I did <laughs> read, ended up reading, I think, Night Flight to Hanoi, you know, and I, I just, I, I became kind of this budding hippie, which was not going over that well with my superiors because I had been kind of this very conventional, you know, and nice, polite seminarian. I started getting kind of edgy. <laughs> and uh, and um, I also began, I think, to explore uh, sort of the idea. It had a very romantic heart. So it was a girl across the lake I had a, a liking to. And, uh, but that was not, you know, that, that wasn't going over well either. You know, you weren't supposed to, hear, you know, uh, there's a celibate, you know, and, and, and it was uh, not to be questioned too much. But you could probably date in the college seminary later. But uh, I was sort of like, why wait, you know, <laughs> not to have some kind of relationship, you know, with with uh, girls and women. And so I ended up leaving there uh, highly influenced, I think, by a need to uh, deal with the war in Vietnam. And uh, I probably could have been deferred as a seminarian, but when I left, I became a subject to the draft. I filed for as a Catholic objector to war, my local draft board. And the woman there was a Catholic. And she said, we have some Dutch boys in town. They're from a traditional peace church. 
and uh, we we exempt them from soldiery. But uh, just I'm a Catholic. I never heard of anything like this. And I had a flyer, you know, from Jim Forrest and the Catholic worker in there. I had a pretty good file. Uh, the Ecumenical Council had a, a draft uh, counseling. Uh, and I owe to Mike Moran, who's still involved with Pax Christi in Central Mass, and Agape, uh, debt of gratitude, helped me prepare that file for my draft board. But later I met the Berrigans and met Dorothy and Dorothy Day, and I just was taken by their heroism. I know in Enfield, the Berrigans were in prison. So here were two priests in prison, and I, I thought of them almost every day. Um, and I was a kind of a sensitive kid in some ways, and, and, and maybe not so sensitive in others. Um, but I remember also organizing Christian Action Group to visit uh, men who were coming back from Vietnam at the VA hospital in White River Junction. And just trying to get kids off the hockey rink to go visit these guys who were coming back who were kind of hurting. And uh, so I was someone who was, uh, I think, uh, called to pull people into into places they didn't ordinarily want to go. <laughs> and I've been doing that since, you know, since those days of trying to bug people to do stuff. So that's just an excuse for me not to do stuff. So. I have a friend, Cuz, the Catholic worker, who's who's such a hard worker. He just loved to do the work. Didn't like to talk all that much. In fact, he's kind of a silent Joseph-like figure, you know. Um, he just did the work and very committed. And one day I said to him, I said, Cuz, you know, you should do some talking around here, you know, lead some tours, which I tend to do at this mustard seed and guests come, visitors. And I should do some work around here. You know, and he said, looked at me and he says, no, Michael, he said, that wouldn't work for either of us, you know. So I end up being this this big talker and I, uh, and encouraging people to do the work. And occasionally I do a, a little bit, but I must be modest about my effort. But I think I've, I've been called in some ways to this didactic place, you know, a little bit as a teacher or an educator of sorts, but kind of a peasant scholar. You know, I think the academy wasn't exactly... But I remember when I first learned of the worker, I read Loaves and Fishes that Dorothy Day wrote, later met Dorothy. And I, when I read Peter Moore's Easy Essays, I said, oh, my God. Uh, these are so simple and yet so profound in their analysis of our situation. I said, there's not, nothing more I'd rather do than this. And that was in college. I was studying sociology and urban studies at the time. But I was really interested also in theology and rural studies. So there are always these tugs in me, Oliver, which is very interesting when you think about all of that. But responding to war and then poverty, and uh, I think all of these things kind of uh, led me, you know, having been in a Shaker village, had a sense of, of communalism, communal life, you know, by osmosis, so to speak. And a Shaker nun came down from Sabbath Day Lake to sing Shaker hymns to us seminarians, Catholic seminarians. Thanks to Dan Shred, a historian, priest historian at Enfield, who was kind of a Shaker scholar. And I was very taken with that. And I think of uh, later became connected to uh, the Trappists, of course, and Spencer and the uh, Cistercian tradition and the monastic Benedictine tradition, of course, and thinking about radical Catholicism and 
uh, linking the sacramental life and social justice. Like Virgil Michelle, the Benedictine monk at St. John's in Collegeville did. And then uh, I think for me, I was sort of finding my, you know, my pre-superiors were not so pleased with some of my leanings, you know, where I was heading. And I, I felt bad. I was somewhat bitter when I left. But I was, I was trying to think, how could I be both remain a Catholic and be a hippie at the same time? And when I say hippie, I have to qualify that. I was a puritanical hippie. I wasn't too far out, you know. Uh, I was more, you know, not kind of one of the more polit on the political side, uh, more of a kind of probably a Rennie Davis type, you know, in the Chicago group, even though I'm a fan of Abby Hoffman which I think uh, today of uh, the Holy Fool tradition, which I, you know, I, I think of the prophets of Israel. Uh, they were like, they were like doing guerrilla theater, you know, to their own people in some ways. And I, I wrote uh, my master's thesis on Abbey is sort of in that line of Hebrew prophets uh, doing a theater, uh, uh, using symbols and signs to speak about ethical values or biblical principles really in some ways although he did right. it rather irreverently i think it was in the service of a kind of reverence and so i kind of honored abby with a very sympathetic portrait and then i think of course um you know um coming out of kind of a jewish sensibility of you know trying to uh the prophetic motif i think is part and parcel of the catholic worker movement when it comes to like war and peace, you know, the Isaiah charge to turn swords into pruning hooks, um, plowshares, uh, all of that very much uh, uh, kind of drew me in. And I remember, of course, uh, I think for me also, when I began to have a family, I had to become a little bit more normal. Okay. <laughs> which was not easy for me because I've never been normal. Yeah. So, I mean, I, I think that's yeah. the other thing I as I look back now, you know, I turned 70 last October mm. and I just retired from the hospital work. I've never been normal, but I've always been drawn to, um, to abnormalcy to some extent uh, because um, I think for very personal reasons, but also for social ones. Um, and um, my, um, my kids, uh, who are young adults now, they almost all of them um, are doing something kind of interesting that deals with uh, service or storytelling or music or all of them combined. Um, and, uh, and I think all of that is sort of uh, how this tradition that I love sort of gets uh, translated by a younger generation and kind of watching how we, uh, uh, when I get my sons to come home, how do you keep them down on the farm after they've been in New York? You know, they're in the acting worlds and other worlds, in physical health uh, and opera. They're in uh, uh, Shakespearean uh, uh, acting. It sounds like you're really proud of them. I'm proud of them. They're storytellers. And, you know, I think for me, I... I, uh, my more, my better, better self or best self is a storyteller, mm -hmm. you know, uh, and, but a storyteller who is telling stories for a purpose, you know, 
for a reason. So that that's that biblical connection again, too, you know, is that we, we revere this tradition uh, and we remember this and we live. Uh, that's where the sacramental life comes in. The, the symbol, we live it substantially in some ways to try to bring those things together. So I think of the worker movement as a very incarnational movement. It's a, it's a movement that has given flesh to, I think, uh, uh, the invitation uh, of the divine for uh, a loving and, and just and merciful social order. And in a sense, uh, um, this is the work of building up the beloved community as King described it. And, uh, and uh, it's not always easy mm. <laughs> to get into it. It's actually downright difficult, but it's also many attending uh, victories that don't look like victories in the ordinary sense of the word, but in from another perspective, there's something there that uh, it's hard to evaluate or describe but it is those in, intangible victories something of beauty yes yeah. yes yeah intangible that you can't measure with data yeah perhaps. yeah it's 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 uh it's a uh it's something to behold oliver and i think you'll be you've beheld yeah. some of it in your visits uh, have yes having visited uh the mustard seed and other Catholic worker spaces. And I keep thinking of Agape as sort of the promised land. You know, there, there's a vision uh -huh. there that <laughs> if you want to know where we really need to yeah. head, what direction to head in, you know, uh, that's the place. Yeah, um, they're certainly living by some really wonderful values there, and you can see the fruits of it through the, the, the cultivation of the land and the spirit of the, the community and mm -hmm. the, the wider community that's drawn there and then goes out into the world. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Yeah. You, um, you mentioned the importance of stories and storytelling um, and yourself as a storyteller and I can't help but think uh, of your like vocation as a, a chaplain and how, from my perspective, and at least having done some chaplaincy training, a lot of chaplaincy is listening and hearing stories of others. Um, I'm wondering if you could share a little bit about that. Um, yeah. Yeah, so I just retired from nine years, you know, being a mm -hmm. hospital chaplain in a large psychiatric hospital here in Worcester. It was part-time for me, 20 hours a week, mm -hmm. so it was a nice balance there. My colleague had a 40-hour uh, schedule, which mm -hmm. was really rigorous, I think. Uh, I was very blessed at 20 hours. I find myself continuing to be kind of have this didactic uh, approach to the chaplaincy, you know, wanting to teach 
And so I would have these groups and I would be doing this teaching. You know, I had been an academic for a while mm-hmm. and uh, I enjoyed that teaching part. I think the challenge for me was to, to do the listening part because uh, I'm such a gabber, you know, <laughs> to listen was not my, my strength. But uh, I found it's very interesting that often the patients listened to me. They were a welcoming community. And they were ministering to me, you know, in ways that uh, were very helpful. And occasionally on my better days, I would get to listen to a number of stories and uh, or just to listen to whatever was being said at a level that kind of was sympathetic. Just to Mm -hmm. say, you know, you're, you're not alone or you're not, you know, there's or there's love to be had. And mercy mm-hmm. to be had, this healing to be had. Uh, and often I needed the same message all the time. So I got into the wounded healer thing, you know, big time when I was there. Uh, two people continued to represent for me uh, aspects of this work that I saw them as forebears. One was Anton Boysen, who founded mm-hmm. CPE, Clinical Pastoral mm-hmm. Education, in Worcester at that hospital, even though he's not well known there, but that's where it started. And at uh, the psychiatric hospital that you yeah, served at? Yeah, Worcester. Yeah, he was at Worcester. Yeah. He wow. started with CPE in Worcester. And um, okay. so uh, my colleague Luis and I, we, we kind of inherited his his mantle, uh, Boysen's mantle. And uh, and then Harry Nowen, of course, got interested in Boysen. I heard he wrote his, his doctoral dissertation, I think, in. Uh, on Boysen, visited Boysen in 1965, I think before Boysen died. He was in a mental hospital in Illinois. And uh, so I would think of uh, Boysen and Nowen uh, as forebears. And Nowen is mostly this kind of sense of woundedness and himself mm-hmm. as, a, as a springboard to help others who are wounded. So the whole wounded healer idea is that you use your own issues, you know, uh, in some ways to be helpful to others. And we're kind of in the same boat, really, when it comes down to it. Mm. You know, the human condition is such that most of us are, are reach adulthood uh, scathed, <laughs> not unscathed in some way. And if you're unscathed, maybe that's your problem. You know, if you arrive there, boy, you're kind of in a, you're in a special category. (laughs) And maybe it's great if you can be there. I have a friend who actually, I think, managed to be relatively unscathed. He's just a very generous soul. And he's in the Catholic worker. But he kind of, kind of sees this whole, he brings a wholeness thing to it. Whereas I always brought this, you know, holes in me thing to it. You know, I'm like Swiss cheese. Uh... And because of that, I'm in solidarity with others that I serve. And uh, but I think that was the thing about uh, the ch- hospital ch- chaplaincy is it it really did open up worlds in which you could talk and you could also listen. And uh, we were all involved in some kind of therapeutic journey. Sure. And that, that included us who were chaplains, uh, I found a lot of healing. I, I began to realize that 
I was there not only for uh, the patients, which was you know in the job description uh, officially. It was also there because I I needed to be there. It was mm-hmm. a real gift to me to be there, and I found a lot of personal healing in the work. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I you know um, perhaps the last nine years I've described as probably the happiest of my work life being in that hospital, uh, working. And I could, you know, not unlike the clinicians who had carried a lot of heavy clinical responsibilities and burdens, uh, my colleague and I we were kind of privileged to be the kind of smile of the place. You know, you could, we could just go and try to cheer every, you know, cheer ourselves up and cheer everybody else up through, through this interaction together. And there were moments that, of course, that were very difficult, but also moments that were just glorious. And I, I saw some rather miraculous, or grace-filled moments unfold, you know, in that setting. Which, interestingly enough, unlike the Catholic worker, it was sort of a much more of a hidden setting, you know, in a way, you know, kind of being, you know, in a this big institution where. There really were walls around it, uh, you know, barbed wire around it. In a a sense, it had a very different kind of, and yet there was a sense of maybe of the walls and the wire being, that could be viewed as artificial, you know, as a place for us to journey somehow uh, together. You know, what do you mean by artificial? In other words, I think people often, and I think it is true, the great burden for the patients is being confined, you know? Yeah. Like you're imprisoned. But the idea of, oh, here's a chance to be like a monk, to to actually not allow these walls to be walls. Let them be, let them be artificial in a sense. Here's your chance to be explorers of this world. It, you and I and all of us need to explore. And Boysen wrote about it called the, he called it sort of the undiscovered uh, landscape, you know, um, the unknown uh, land that we needed to explore within us. And I, I think it's a great and daring thing when people do explore it. And often uh, folks who are there there is an invitation to explore it, you know, those who can in many ways. And I also related to a group of, of, of uh, young intellectuals who were there uh, who got sick, and but who are bright and beautiful and uh, tried to be supportive of folks who are kind of in very different places than, than the ordinary patient, in a sense, uh, around certain things, uh, but who are really trying to recalibrate uh, things um, yeah but the art of listening I think it's it's it remains a bit of a lost art in our time and place and I, I wish I were better at it and maybe you know now I get a chance to do to be more pensive and think about that because I still often apologize for talking too much like I've been doing here in this <laughs> this time, Oliver. You say, oh, "Come on, Oliver, you talk now." 
<laughs> no need no need to apologize, but I do appreciate that. Uh, I have no I, I I invited you here to talk and I'm glad that we're able to have this conversation together. Um, it's it's fascinating to hear about the the places you've been and your journeys and reflections. Um, you mentioned the uh, the interior life uh, a couple of times um, throughout the conversation once about how when you were in the uh, the high school seminary, not many of the students tended to have an interior life and then how like you just mentioned at the at the uh, hospital to be able to uh, facilitate a connection to the interior life of the patients mm -hmm. um, has been a, mm -hmm. a joy for you can you tell me a little bit about how you were first invited into the interior life of, of yourself or into that idea yeah yeah you know, um, it's a good question. I think there was a longing, and I, I don't think there's a clear sense of, of having been introduced in any in any uh, ordinary ways growing up. I think largely it was an exterior commitment to the Catholic faith that I think I was molded, you know, so to speak, or shaped by exterior practices or external practices, including the liturgy. But I didn't know that there was more to the liturgy or, I, or I'd had these experiences after maybe going to confession as a kid. I'd be riding my bicycle home and feeling this kind of new freedom, you know, having received the sacrament of uh, reconciliation, as we call it now, um, and realizing there was something more. So there was a sense of an, an interior thing. And Growing up in a little village, I did have, in some ways, some roots. But I also had some bumps along the road. Um, but I was very drawn by, I think, even though I couldn't describe it, perhaps, but probably in the eighth grade, I was the therapist for the midnight mass at the church before I left for the seminary. And that was a beautiful thing, which I was, you know, had the incense and we had the Eucharist and the monstrance, and I was able to to be the one who kind of did that praise, you know, in this other form, you know, as a therapist. And uh, I thought of that as a high point, you know, of my, probably of, of the interior life that, as I met it at that age, and I'm not so sure at that age you, you would have. I did have one, it was a seminary older than me, he's a Franciscan priest now. I, I, I knew he had it when he was there. And I think, how did he get it? Um, he was someone who talked about, I, I remember in conversations, something like uh, about the Carthusians and a couple of guys who kind of had a sense of this depth, but a lot of us were singing the hymns. We were, you know, doing the sacramental stuff. We were doing all of that, which was wonderful and great. We would pray prime and common, but it's a lot of words, a lot, a lot that's conceptual. So when I got to the Catholic worker, I think the great, struggle is burnout right i mean that's part right. of the thing but i was also you know thinking about about uh, when i left the seminary of trying to find a home and some of us catholic workers uh, 
went to Taizé in France to the Council of Youth. And there the life of prayer and the life of activism were threaded in a way that also bespoke it. But I think it was only uh, later uh, Thomas Keating, Father Eddie, the monks at Spencer took us under the wing and they tried to get us to meditate and sit. And by nature, and even by grace, we weren't good at it. We were activists and we weren't, you know, Frank and I, and trying to get us guys to sit was like, you know, getting a, a, a very restless kid, you know, <laughs> and a, a child to kind of like uh, say, well, you just sit down here and uh, be quiet now, you know, good luck. <laughs> but we did have some romantic, uh, romantic period as we were introduced to the Centering Prayer phenomenon. And later on, I was able to go to Snow Mass later and be with Keating for an intensive retreat. And even then, but I would say it was at Andover Newton. This is the very, very strange thing. Uh, I had all these hints and so forth. It was uh, studying uh, with Mark Burroughs, uh, Saint, the writings of St. Bernard of Clairvaux and the early Cistercian writers. All of a sudden, the words started leaping off the pages in ways that I did not expect. And I began to reconnect with my Catholic tradition, the monastic tradition. And I, I think a sense of uh, these lights went on inside that, but I think I needed that place in grad school, really. And I was very late, you know, to think about it, very late to be catching this stuff. Um, but wow, when it, when it started uh, lighting up, it was really like, I know it was led on these different paths, but, but here it is, you know, the lights going on. And in the Catholic working movement, of course, this, uh, I remember, um, John Trushot, we were on this intensive in Snowmass together, and he was kind of in the Berrigan circles as well as I was, and, and he was at Jonah House for a while. And, uh, but we were praying and, and considering our activism as well and all of that. And uh, we had like a little talent show before we left Snowmass to go our own way after sitting for a couple of months with Thomas and having these lectures. And uh, at uh, we had learned about lights on spirituality, lights off spirituality. And John invented this thing about the Catholic. What is the Catholic worker of spirituality? Lights out <laughs> spirituality. Sometimes we were so burnt out, we didn't have a, you know, a chance to like think about. We had this other sense of spirituality. It was sort of like being knocked out, you know, in some ways you were, you were, you could pick up burdens, heavy burdens uh, and accumulate them in a way that I think uh, what they would call, I think, we didn't have a clinical mind or understanding in those days, but you probably would say second, secondhand trauma. Or, you know, second, yeah, you, you ended up picking up, besides carrying your own trauma, uh, picking up additional traumas. So I think of healing, you know, right now, and I think about we live in a traumatized world. How do we heal? And these forms of meditation, profound, deep meditation. I think the attraction also to Buddhism, to mindfulness training, and all of that is very helpful for us here. We've been doing some of that here at Annunciation House um, and Centering Prayer and Mindfulness. Is, uh, we can find there some rest uh, in which to uh, 
lay our burdens down, so to speak, let them be, and then to try to discover the sources of joy, of blessing, of being receptive to love and grace in traditional Catholic terms or Christian terms, as we would know them. Uh, God is gift and uh, allow something to happen. Uh, so I, and I think about that, and then there's a sense of, well, uh, this waking up thing with Thich Nhat Hanh, I think, and others to awake, uh, Pima children, you wake up. Uh, Merton was getting into this, I think, too, in his relationship with the East. Uh, we're already where we're supposed to be. You just have to wake up to the fact that it's okay. We're already, God is, you know, we're in God already by virtue of who God is. I forget that. So it's remembering that. <laughs> and finding, of course, uh, I think when we started meditating, because we were so traumatized, I think the hard part of centering prayer for us was this kind of purification period that was very rough and tumble, I think. Yeah, all the, all the trauma comes up in your consciousness yeah. when you're, when you're, you've been sort of pushing it away and trying to do the work. Yeah, um, yeah. To, to enter that interior yeah, now space I think can be jarring. The influence of Buddhism is, is sort of, uh, but Keating also talked about this, is I think we begin to, in this practice, have real trust, which sometimes still eludes me, <laughs> you know, but to have real trust is healing. It's very healing because you also begin to not have to control. And I think this is the gift of Buddhism is, is a sense of fluidity, more fluidity. And maybe for cradle Catholics like myself who are used to actually trying to establish more control, or, you know, we, we grew up in controlled environments, so to speak, or doctrinal, doctrinally kind of heavy laden environments. For us to move in these directions of trust was sort of new. But Keating, I think, and Basil Pennington, William, uh, uh, Father William, they were they were pioneers, I think, of uh, uh, bringing back this older Catholic tradition. Uh, you find in the cloud of unknowing. So all of that, I think, has been you know, for me, the mystics have become very. Uh, they were very front and center. When I was teaching, I think perhaps the favorite course that I taught was Encounters with the Mystics. I just loved that. It just fit with everything that I was trying to be about and do. And I just resonated with them and how they, it was the deeper life, of course. But I had been someone who was on the surface a lot. But I, I, when you think about this, it's actually very Augustinian. <laughs> Augustine, you know, I was running away from myself. How could I find you? You know, kind of thing. Mm. You had to come home. And maybe this is the blending of you know, the work at the hospital, spirituality and psychology, which I think now was really trying to get at Keating too. Mm -hmm. uh, that these belong together. You know, they could be mutually. It's sort of an artificial enriching. separation that they have. Yeah, yeah. They could be very mutually enriching if given the right conditions. Yeah. 
and 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 you hear about maybe a ninety percent of psychologists or something like that are non-religious, mm-hmm. right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And there's so, so much emphasis, I think, on the science, the neurobiology, and you know, uh, psychotropics, and all of that is some of it very very important and good. You know, the mm-hmm. chemistry and all of that. But there's also this love part. <laughs> and I think, you know, being listened to, being heard, yeah. which I think Boysen saw, people needed to be heard. He needed to be heard. And it's in being that talk therapy, being really being mm-hmm. heard, that he found healing. And I think that's where the chaplain's role comes in. You were talking about earlier. Yeah. Be a good listener, which I think is challenging, especially for folks like me, you know, who always. <laughs> But uh, actually, I did have some some. I did have one patient who, who told me I was a good listener, and I ended up telling her she was the far better listener. Very interesting to, to think about these things. Yeah, it takes one to know one, I guess. <laughs> maybe, maybe, maybe. <laughs> but um, uh, you're very, very gracious uh, in that because. Uh, Often when I met with this person, uh, I was sharing uh, mystical theology with someone okay. uh, in some depth. And uh, the person is uh, very attuned, well-educated person, uh, very attuned to, to uh, what I was sharing, uh, and but not often wanting to say much in return, just to hear it, mm. you know? Teresa of Avila, uh, the Interior Castle, um, John of the Cross, the Dark Knight of the Soul. Some of this stuff, I think, also was Boysen was very much moved by the mystics. Mm-hmm. And so I think I think that uh, mystical theology and mental health have a connection. You know, I think um, how we go about that. It's, it's a complex undertaking and a delicate dance, but it's one very worth uh, exploring, you know? I'd love to take a class on mystical theology and mental health. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Uh, well, uh, if you read the mystics, they are a little edgy uh, mentally often, especially the medieval mystics, some of them. Uh-huh. But they, I think they're communicating something that even the postmodern, you know, sophisticated mind can comprehend um, about touching uh, uh, the deeper life, touching the wellsprings of love and mercy and grace that uh, spring from the divine love, the divine lover. So these are uh, truly, you know, uh, spiritual uh, sharings, and I, I think of these as uh, significant. And whether you know the institutions can uh, be responsive uh, uh, to a large extent to them is a good question. Uh, but I think I got a lot of respect from the folks in the psych department for the kind of work we, I was doing and my colleague was doing 
we had a, you know a fair amount of respect, but we, we also were not clinicians. But I think we brought something to the to it all that was kind of important and yeah. significant and. Hopefully, someone will carry the torch around all of this, you know. Uh, and and uh, yeah, uh, and carry the torch of of uh, chaplaincy and the connections with mystical yeah, theology. Yeah, yeah, bringing those pieces together. I think of mystical theology, yeah. uh, and you know, I I recall reading also. Uh, the writings of a Quaker, uh, Thomas Kelly, Testament mm -hmm. of Devotion. And here's this very simple Quaker, and he's, he was always citing Catholic mystics in this little little <laughs> classic in a way that told me he really understood. He really understood. He really understood yeah. Catholicism and could put it in a simple way. And certainly I was drawn to that powerfully. So I do have a friend in Boston who, who works in the university chaplaincies and uh, uh, university chaplaincy role, spiritual life role, uh, who's a Quaker. And uh, we're both at Andover Newton. He said, we sometimes okay. we see each other. We say, we're Catholics, you know. <laughs> Quaker Catholics. But yeah, we're Catholics. It's a blending of some of these things. But the <laughs> Quaker thing, of course, is also very very tied to the mystical tradition because it's this direct experience of God and, and the Catholic mystics, that was their thing too. They sort mm -hmm. of, it wasn't, even though they were part of the institutional life of the church, they, they also had a, they, uh, a place that, that uh, uh, was very, very um, at the center of it, but often, would be seen as being marginal in some ways. So these are kind of interesting things, because I think now Karl Rana, the famous Jesuit theologian, wrote about, you know, the Christian of the future will either be a mystic or not at all, that mm -hmm. we need to recover this sense of experience. And I think this is something that uh, in the hospital, I found out that, you know, the kind of theology, and this is where uh, I, I suppose the kind of theologian I was, which is in some ways kind of a folk theologian, <laughs> It fit. This is the place where experience, you know, and this is where uh, Boysen comes in. How to read, you know, everyone was a living text, a living document to be read with mm -hmm. reverence and care. And that was often hard to do in a big institution, but it can be done. Uh, having that attitude, at least, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Were there a lot of people coming in and out of the of the hospital when you were working there or was it a pretty stable uh both uh, you know there, there yeah. are folks who are there uh long term mm -hmm. largely because there's no place really for many of them other than to be there uh, no community-based uh option for them and then a lot of people would stay for a little while and move on they'll get better and move on so the emphasis on recovery Mm. is pronounced now and that's a very positive movement i think yeah, yeah. absolutely yeah um but yeah yeah those are all you know I, I keep thinking of these things and uh as an old man now i uh i'm not sure where it's all gonna go 
it's an opportunity to integrate these experiences now, I think, Oliver, in a way. So thank you for giving me a chance to gab like this. Uh, you know? Absolutely. Yeah, thank you for your time. Uh, and it's been wonderful to, uh, to reconnect with you and to talk about these things. Yeah, it's been nice. We've been, uh, Frank Carthizer and I from the Mustard Seed and others, working with uh, some young people at Holy Cross this mm-hmm. this last uh, semester uh, and studying Catholic worker theology and some history and, mm. and uh, experiential learning by mm-hmm. some of the young students coming down from Mount St. James to the Mustard Seed being part of the mundane work, uh, part of the conversational work with the poor, being presence. Uh, and uh, it's been really nice. Yeah, yeah. It's a nice thing. Old timers and young timers, you know, get get us together once in a while. <laughs> Intergenerational you know, that's exchange. Yeah. Yeah. I, 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 I am... Um... I'm curious what you have planned or unplanned for the this next phase of life now that you've retired from your career at the uh, uh, hospital. Right now, it's interesting, Oliver, because uh, I would like to kick back a little bit more, but I, where because the mustard seed is turning 50 this fall, uh, which is something, 50 years that we've been at it, you know, in Worcester. We're having a bunch of celebrations to call the Jubilee <laughs> year, this Jubilee year. And so we're doing a big conference, Catholic Worker Gathering, National, International Catholic Worker Gathering at Holy Cross. Mm-hmm. And I'm helping to organize that. When is that? Uh, it's going to be October 20, I think, 21st, 22nd, 23rd up at Holy Cross and uh, fellow travelers would be welcome. You know, uh, Catholic workers from around the world uh, are hoping to come. And it's maybe about over, a, I think maybe about 16 or so Holy Cross alums who are either in houses, founded houses or working on farms, founded farms, communes, Catholic worker. So this idea of a vocation, uh, uh, we're hoping to bring a bunch of those Holy Cross alums uh, to the back to their uh, alma mater to talk about, you know, the Catholic work of vocation out of the Jesuit root, you know, Ignatius of Loyola, another mystic, you know, uh, that influence. Yeah. Absolutely. Ignatius valued the interior life very deeply. Yeah, yeah. I, uh... You know, and a great leaders in education, Pedro Arupe and others who, uh, you know, being people for others, generosity, service, you oh, know, yeah. all of that. Yeah. So nice to work with those Jesuit educated kids. Yeah, they're a nice bunch. Absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> We're working with a theologian, too, who's an expert in Kyle Rahner, which is interesting. I don't know whether we'll get turned on to Kyle, but more and more too, it would be nice to do that because we're connecting with, with this fellow, uh, Peter, uh, oh. who's an expert in Rahner. And uh, it's his classes that uh, are engaged, we're engaged with. Uh, Wonderful. 
Yeah. Well, if, if people want to learn more about this conference, how can they find out more? Yeah, so you could go to the Mustard Seed, uh, mustardseedcw.org website, sure. mm-hmm. or to the Mustard Seed Facebook page, mm-hmm. and uh, uh, there will be uh, information there uh, on the gathering. Yeah. That's great. Yeah. So I, I, until October, I'm, I'm kind of still going out straight on this organizing effort. After that, I'm thinking, but I, uh, I do hope to be a better farmer this summer. I'm overlooking the back uh-huh. gardens here from my perch up here and uh, hoping to do a little bit more out there that uh, to be a, like a good shaker little more orderly rows and <laughs> care of, you know, beauty, bring a little of the beauty into the, into the realm. And it's order. a wonderful uh, pursuit. Yeah. Yeah. And maybe a little bit more writing, but that's, uh, that's ahead. Yeah. Well, that sounds great. Like I said, thank you. Thank you again. Um, is there anything else that, well, happy April of. Fool's Day. I, I'm glad. I think that's an apropos day for me to be on this podcast. Uh, when I married Diane, we had a quote from St. Francis uh, uh, on our marriage. Uh, it was a, like a little saying uh, of Francis. May the Lord grant that I be the fool, the likes of which the world has never seen. And uh, we're, we're kind of foolish. <laughs> <laughs> or Dorothy would say, let, let us try to be, or Peter Moran, fools for Christ. You know? Fools for Christ. That's yeah. right. Amen. <laughs> Amen. Thank you for supporting the podcast by listening. If you want to learn more about the Catholic Worker Movement or some of the topics discussed in the podcast, check out the links in the podcast description. Please subscribe if you want to be notified of new episodes. Feel free to reach out and keep on living the questions. We'll see you next time.